Chapter 8 A few days later, when the terror caused by the executions had died down, some of the animals remembered, or thought they remembered, that the Sixth Commandment decreed, No animal shall kill any other animal. And though no one cared to mention it in the hearing of the pigs or the dogs, it was felt that the killings which had taken place did not square with this. Clover asked asked Benjamin to read her the six commandments. And when Benjamin, as usual, said he refused to meddle in such matters, she fetched Muriel. Muriel read the commandment for her. It ran, no animal shall kill any other animal without cause. Somehow or other, the last two words had slipped out of the animal's memory. But they saw now that the commandment had not been violated, for clearly there was a good reason for killing the traitors who had leagued themselves with Snowball. Throughout the year, the animals worked even harder than they had worked in the previous year to rebuild the windmill with walls twice as thick as before and to finish it by the appointed date, together with the regular work of the farm, was a tremendous labour. There were times where it seemed to the animals that they worked longer hours and fed no better than they had done in Jones's day. On Sunday morning, Squealer, holding down a long strip of paper with his trotter, would read out to them lists of figures proving that the production of every class of foodstuff had increased by 200%, 300% or 500% as the case might be. The animals saw no reason to disbelieve him especially as they could no longer remember very clearly what conditions had been like before the rebellion. All the same, there were days when they felt like they would sooner have less figures and more food. All orders were now issued through Squealer or one of the other pigs. Napoleon himself was not seen in public as often as once a fortnight, When he did appear, he was attended not only by his retinue of dogs, but by a black cockerel who marched in front of him and acted as a kind of trumpeter, letting out a large cock-a-doodle-doo before Napoleon spoke. Even in the farmhouse, it was said, Napoleon inhabited separate apartments from the others. He took his meals alone with the dogs to wait upon him and always ate from the Crown Derby dinner service, which had been in the glass cupboard in the drawing room. It was also announced that the gun would be fired every year on Napoleon's birthday, as well as on the other two anniversaries. Napoleon was now never spoken of as simply Napoleon. He was always referred to in a formal style as our leader, Comrade Napoleon. And the pigs liked to invent for him such titles as Father of all animals, Terror of mankind, Protector of the sheepfold, Duckling's friend and the like. In his speeches, Squealer would talk with the tears rolling down his cheeks of Napoleon's wisdom, the goodness of his heart and the deep love he bore to all animals everywhere, even and especially the unhappy animals who still lived in ignorance and slavery on the other farms. 
It had become usual to give Napoleon the credit for every successful achievement and every stroke of good fortune. You would often hear one hen remark to another, Under the guidance of our leader, comrade Napoleon, I've laid five eggs in six days. Or two cows enjoying a drink at the pool would exclaim, Thanks to the leadership of comrade Napoleon, how excellent this water tastes. The general feeling on the farm was expressed in a poem entitled Comrade Napoleon, which was composed by Minimus and which ran as follows. Friend of the fatherless, fountain of happiness, lord of the swill bucket, oh how my soul is on, fire when I gaze at thee, calm and commanding eye, like the sun in the sky, comrade Napoleon. Thou art the giver of all that thy creatures love, full belly twice a day, clean straw to roll upon, every beast, great or small, sleeps in peace in his stall, thou watchest over all, comrade Napoleon. Had I a suckling pig, ere he had grown as big, even as a pint bottle or a rolling pin, he should have learnt to be faithful and true to thee, yes, his first squeak should be, Comrade Napoleon. Napoleon approved of the poem and caused it to be inscribed on the wall of the big barn. At the opposite end of the Seven Commandments, it was surmounted by a portrait of Napoleon in profile, executed by Squealer in white paint. Meanwhile, through the agency of Wimpen, Napoleon was engaged in complicated negotiations with Frederick and Pilkington. The pile of timber was still unsold. Of the two, Frederick was the more anxious to get hold of it, but he would not offer a reasonable price. At the same time, there were renewed rumours that Frederick and his men were plotting to attack Animal Farm and to destroy the windmill, the building of which had aroused furious jealousy in him. Snowball was known to still be skulking on Pinchfield Farm. In the middle of the summer, the animals were alarmed to hear that three hens had come forward and confessed that, inspired by Snowball, they had entered into a plot to murder Napoleon. They were executed immediately and fresh precautions for Napoleon's safety were taken. Four dogs guarded his bed at night, one at each coma and a young pig named Pink Eye was given the task of tasting all of his food before he ate it lest it should be poisoned. At about the same time, it was given out that Napoleon had arranged to sell the pile of timber to Mr Pilkington. He was also going to enter into a regular agreement for the exchange of certain products between Animal Farm and Foxwood. The relations between Napoleon and Pilkington, though they were only conducted through Wimper, were now almost friendly. The animals distrusted Pilkington as a human being, but greatly preferred him to Frederick, whom they both feared and hated. As the summer wore on and the windmill neared completion, the rumours of an impending treacherous attack grew stronger and stronger. Frederick, it was said, intended to bring against them 20 men, all armed with guns. 
and he'd already bribed the magistrates and the police so that if he could once get hold of the tied deeds of Animal Farm, then there would be no questions asked. Moreover, terrible stories were leaking out of Pinchfield about the cruelties that Frederick practised upon his animals. He'd flogged an old horse to death. He'd starved his cows. He'd killed a dog by throwing it into the furnace. He amused himself in the evenings by making cocks fight with splinters of razor blades tied to their spurs. The animal's blood boiled with rage when they heard of these things being done to their comrades. And sometimes they clamoured to be allowed to go out in a body and attack Pinchfield Farm, drive out the humans and set the animals free. But Squealer counselled them to avoid rash actions and trust in Comrade Napoleon's strategy. Nevertheless, feeling against Frederick continued to run high. One Sunday morning, Napoleon appeared in the barn and explained that he had never at any time contemplated selling the pile of timber to Frederick. He considered it beneath his dignity. He said to have dealings with scoundrels of that description. The pigeons, who were still sent out to spread tidings of the rebellion, were forbidden to set foot anywhere on Foxwood and were also ordered to drop their former slogan of death to humanity in favour of death to Frederick. In the late summer, yet another of Snowball's machinations was laid bare. The wheat crops was full of weeds and it was discovered that on one of his nocturnal visits, Snowball had mixed weed seeds in with the seed corns. A gander who'd been privy to the plot had confessed his guilt to Squealer and immediately committed suicide by swallowing deadly nightshade berries. The animals now also learned that Snowball had never, as many of them had believed hitherto, received the order of animal hero first class. This was merely a legend which had been spread some time after the Battle of the Cowshed by Snowball himself. So far from being decorated, he had been censored for showing cowardice in the battle. Once again, some of the animals heard this with a certain bewilderment, but Squealer was soon able to convince them that their memories had been at fault. In the autumn, by a tremendous, exhausting effort, for the harvest had to be gathered at almost the same time as the windmill being finished, the machinery had still to be installed and Wimper was negotiating the purchase of it, but the structure was completed. In the teeth of every difficulty, in spite of inexperience, of primitive implements, of bad luck and of Snowball's treachery, the work had been finished punctually to the very day. Tired out but proud, the animals walked round and round their masterpiece, which now appeared to be even more beautiful in the eyes than when they had built it the first time. Moreover, the walls were twice as thick as before. Nothing short of explosives would lay them down low this time. And when they thought of how they had laboured, what discouragements they had overcome and the enormous difference that would be made in their lives when the sails were turning and the dynamos running, when they thought of all this tiredness fortook them and they gambled round and round the windmill, uttering cries of triumph. 
Napoleon himself, attended by his dogs and his cockerel, came down to inspect the completed work. He personally congratulated the animals on their achievement and announced that the mill would be named Napoleon Mill. Two days later, the animals were called together for a special meeting in the barn. They were struck dumb with surprise when Napoleon announced that he had sold the pile of timber to Frederick. Tomorrow, Frederick's wagons would arrive and begin carting it away. Throughout the whole period of his seeming friendship with Pilkington, Napoleon had really been in secret agreement with Frederick. All relations with Foxwood had been broken off. Insulting messages had been sent to Pilkington. The pigeons had been told to avoid Pinchfield Farm and to alter their slogan from death to Frederick to death to Pilkington. At the same time, Napoleon assured the animals that the stories of an impending attack on Animal Farm were completely untrue and that the tales about Frederick's cruelty to his own animals had been greatly exaggerated. All these rumours had probably originated with Snowball and his agents. It now appeared that Snowball was not, after all, hiding on Pinchfield Farm and in fact had never been seen there in his life. He was living in considerable luxury, so it was said, at Foxwood and in reality been a pensioner of Pilkington for the last few years. The pigs were in ecstasy over Napoleon's cunning. By seeming to be friendly with Pilkington, he'd forced Frederick to raise his price by £12. But the superior quality of Napoleon's mind, said Squealer, was shown in the fact that he trusted nobody, not even Frederick. Frederick had wanted to pay for the timber with something called a cheque, which was a piece of paper with a promise written on it. But Napoleon was too clever for him. He had demanded payment in real £5 notes, which were to be handed over before the timber was removed. Already Frederick had paid up and the sum he had paid was enough to buy the machinery for the windmill. Meanwhile, the timber was being carted away at a high speed. When it was all gone, another special meeting was held in the barn for the animals to inspect Frederick's banknotes. Smiling and wearing both his decorations, Napoleon reposed on a bed of straw on the platform with the money at his side, neatly piled on a china dish from the farmhouse, and the animals filed slowly past and each gazed his fill. And when Boxer put out his nose to sniff at the banknotes and the flimsy white thing stirred and rustled at his breath, Three days later, there was a terrible hullabaloo. Wimper, his face deadly pale, came racing up the path on his bicycle, flung it down the yard and rushed straight into the farmhouse. The next moment, a choking roar of rage sounded from Napoleon's apartments. The news of what had happened spread round the farm like wildfire. The banknotes were forgeries. Frederick had got the timber for nothing. Napoleon called the animals together immediately and in a terrible voice pronounced the death sentence upon Frederick. When captured, he said, Frederick should be boiled alive. At the same time, he warned that after all this treacherous deed, the worst was to be expected. 
Frederick and his men might make their long-expected attack at any moment. Sentinels were placed at all the approaches to the farm. In addition, four pigeons were sent to Foxwood with a conciliatory message, which it was hoped might re-establish good relations with Pilkington. The very next morning, the attack came. The animals were at breakfast when the lookouts came racing in with the news that Frederick and his followers had already come through the five-barred gate. Boldly enough, the animals sallied forth to meet them, but this time they did not have the easy victory that they'd had in the Battle of the Cowshed. There were 15 men with half a dozen guns between them, and they opened fire as soon as they got within 50 yards. The animals could not face the terrible explosions and stinging pellets, and in spite of the efforts of Napoleon and Boxer to rally them, they were soon driven back. A number of them were already wounded. They took refuge in the farm buildings and peeped cautiously out from chinks and knotholes. The whole of the big pasture, including the windmill, was in the hands of the enemy. For the moment, even Napoleon seemed at a loss. He paced up and down without a word, his tail rigid and twitching. Wistful glances were sent in the direction of Foxwood. If Pilkington and his men would help them, the day might yet be won. But at this moment, the four pigeons who'd been sent out on the day before returned, one of them bearing a scrap of paper from Pilkington. On it was pencilled the words, Serves you right. Meanwhile, Frederick and his men had halted about the windmill. The animals watched them and a murmur of dismay went round. Two of the men had produced a crowbar and a sledgehammer. They were going to knock the windmill down. Impossible, cried Napoleon. We've built the walls far too thick for that. They could not knock it down in a week. Courage, comrades. But Benjamin was watching the movements of the men intently. The two with the hammer and the crowbar were drilling a hole near the base of the windmill. Slowly and with an air of almost amusement, Benjamin nodded his long muzzle. I thought so, he said. Do you not see what they are doing? In another moment, they're going to pack blasting powder into that hole. Terrified, the animals waited. It was impossible to venture out of the shelter of the buildings. After a few minutes, the men were seen to be running in all directions. Then there was a deafening roar. The pigeons swirled into the air and all the animals, except Napoleon, flung themselves flat on their bellies and hid their faces. When they got up again, a huge cloud of black smoke was hanging where the windmill had been. Slowly, the breeze drifted away and the windmill had ceased to exist. At this sight, the animals' courage returned to them. The fear and despair they had felt a moment earlier were drowned in their rage against this vile, contemptible act. A mighty cry for vengeance went up, and without waiting for further orders, they charged forth in a body and made straight for the enemy. This time they did not heed the cruel pellets that swept over them like a hail. It was a savage, bitter battle. The men fired again and again, and when the animals got to close quarters, lashed out with their sticks and their heavy boots. A cow, three sheep and two geese were killed, and nearly everyone was wounded. Even Napoleon, who was directing operations from the rear, had his tail chipped by a pellet. 
but the men did not go unscathed either. Three of them had their heads broken by blows from boxers' hooves. Another was gored in the belly by a cow's horn. Another had his trousers nearly taken off by Jesse and Bluebell. And when the nine dogs of Napoleon's own bodyguard, whom he'd instructed to make a detour under the cover of the hedge, suddenly appeared on the men's flank, baying ferociously, panic overtook them. They saw that they were in danger of being surrounded. Frederick shouted to his men to get out while the going was good, and the next moment the cowardly enemy was running for dear life. The animals chased them right down the bottom of the field and got in some last kicks at them as they forced their way through the thorn hedge. They had won, but they were weary and bleeding. Slowly they began to limp back towards the farm. The sight of their dead comrades stretched upon the grass moved some of them to tears, and for a little while they halted in sorrowful silence at the place where the windmill had once stood. Yes, it was gone. Almost the last trace of their labour was gone. Even the foundations were partially destroyed, and in the rebuilding it they could not this time, as before, make use of the falling stones. This time the stones had vanished too. The force of the explosion had flung them to distances of hundreds of yards. It was as though the windmill had never been. As they approached the farm, Squealer, who had been unaccountably absent during the fighting, came skipping towards them, whisking his tail and beaming with satisfaction, and the animals heard from the direction of the farm buildings the solemn booming of a gun. "'What is the gun firing for?' said Boxer. "'To celebrate our victory!' said Squealer. "'What victory?' said Boxer. "'His knees were bleeding. "'He'd lost a shoe and split his hoof, "'and a dozen pellets had lodged themselves in his hind leg. "'What victory, comrade? "'Have we not driven the enemy off our soil, "'the sacred soil of Animal Farm?' But they have destroyed the windmill and we've worked on it for two years. What matter? We will build another windmill. We will build six windmills if we feel like it. You do not appreciate, comrade, the mighty things that we have done. The enemy was in occupation of this very ground that we stand upon. And now, thanks to the leadership of comrade Napoleon, we've won every inch of it back again. Then we have won back what we had before, said Boxer. That is our victory, said Squealer. They limped into the yard. The pellets under the skin of Boxer's legs smarted painfully. He saw ahead of him the heavy labour of rebuilding the windmill from the foundations and already in imagining he braced himself for the task. But for the first time it occurred to him that he was 11 years old and that perhaps his great muscles were not quite what they had once been. But when the animals saw the green flag flying and heard the gun firing again seven times it was fired in all and heard the speech that Napoleon made congratulating them on their conduct, it did seem to them after all that they had won a great victory. The animals slain in the battle were given a solemn funeral. Boxer and Clover pulled the wagon which served as a hearse and Napoleon himself walked at the head of the procession. Two whole days were given over to celebrations. There were songs, speeches and more firing of the gun and a special gift of an apple was bestowed on every animal with two ounces for corn for every bird and three biscuits for every dog.
It was announced that it should be called the Battle of the Windmill and that Napoleon had created a new decoration, the Order of the Green Banner, which he had conferred upon himself in the general rejoicings, the unfortunate affair of the banknotes was forgotten. It was a few days later than this that the pigs came upon a case of whiskey in the cellars of the farmhouse. It had been overlooked at the time when the house was first occupied. That night there came from the farmhouse the sound of loud singing, in which to everyone's surprise the strains of Beast of England were all mixed up. At about half past nine, Napoleon, wearing an old bowler hat of Mr Jones's, was distinctly seen to emerge from the back door, gallop rapidly round the, lo- round the yard and disappear indoors again. But in the morning, a deep silence hung over the farmhouse. Not a pig appeared to be stirring. It was nearly nine o'clock when Squealer made his appearance, walking slowly and dejectedly, his dull eyes, his tail hanging limply behind, and with every appearance of being seriously ill. He called the animals together and told them that he had a terrible piece of news to impart. Comrade Napoleon was dying. A cry of lamentation went up. Straw was laid down outside the doors of the farmhouse and the animals walked in tiptoe. With tears in their eyes, they asked one another what they should do if their leader was taken away from them. A rumour went around that Snowball, after all, contrived to introduce poison into Napoleon's food. At eleven o'clock, Squealer came out to make another announcement. As his last act upon the earth, Comrade Napoleon had pronounced a solemn decree. The drinking of alcohol was to be punished by death. By the evening, however, Napoleon appeared to be somewhat better, and the following morning Squealer was able to tell them that he was well on the way to recovery. By the end of that day, Napoleon was back at work and on the next day it was learned that he he had instructed Wimper to purchase in Willingdon some booklets on brewing and distilling. A week later, Napoleon gave orders that the small paddock beyond the orchard, which had previously been intended to set aside as grazing ground for animals who were past work, was to be ploughed up. It was given out that the pasture was exhausted and needed reseeding, but it soon became known that Napoleon intended to sow it with barley. About this time there occurred a strange incident which hardly anyone was able to understand. One night, at about 12 o'clock, there was a loud crash in the yard and the animals rushed out of their stalls. It was a moonlit night at the foot of the end of the wall at the big barn where the seven commandments were written there lay a ladder broken in two pieces. Squealer, temporarily stunned, was sprawling beside it and near a hand there lay a lantern, a paintbrush and an overturned pot of white paint. The dogs immediately made a ring around Squealer and escorted him back to the farmhouse as soon as he was able to walk. None of the animals could form any ideas as to what this meant, except old Benjamin, who nodded his muzzle with a knowing air and seemed to understand, but would say nothing. A few days later, Muriel, reading over the Seven Commandments to herself, noticed that there was yet another thing that the animals had been remembering wrong. They had thought that the Fifth Commandment was, no animal shall drink alcohol. But there were two words that they'd forgotten. Actually, the commandment read, no animal shall drink alcohol.
to excess. That was chapter eight of Animal Farm. <laughs>